Well, good morning. Welcome to worship at Calvary, whatever venue you're in, all of you here in the worship center, all of you over in the chapel, all of you at our Minnetonka campus, and then anyone watching online this morning. It's so, so good to be worshiping with you. We're in the book of First Peter, which is a short letter in the New Testament. And if you have a Bible with you or your Bible app on your phone, or you can also just Google First Peter and it'll get you right there. Or if you're in one of our worship venues, there is Bibles in front of you. However you want to engage with it, I would invite you to turn with me this morning to First Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3. Now, before we jump in, I want to ask you a question. Have you ever met someone before who seemingly has a one-track mind? Like someone who sounds like a broken record. All they want to do is talk about one thing and one thing alone. You know, for some people, it might be sports. For others, it might be their work. For others, it might be how much they love Taylor Swift. Or in the past month, it might be how much they dislike Taylor Swift. Editorial comment, get a grip, people, all right? But I saw a social media post this last week that said, do you have one or two or three different topics that at the drop of a hat, you could give a 30-minute presentation on? Like something you're so passionate about, you're so knowledgeable about, you could just get up here and you could talk 30 minutes straight about that topic. So I started to think, like, what would I be ready to present? I thought, well, one that would be really easy for me is the soul-crushing disappointment of being a Minnesota sports fan. I could go at least 30 minutes on that. The other one I thought of is crazy things that have happened at weddings and funerals. I have probably two hours on that. Sometime ask me about the tent that blew away in someone's backyard or the trellis that fell on the guitar player as the bride was coming down the aisle. And there's many more where that came from. Now, the reason I bring this up is that if you've been tracking with us each week in the book of First Peter, you might think Peter sounds like a broken record. He's got just a couple of themes that he revisits again and again. Like we hear a whole lot about hope and a lot about suffering. And he continually is talking about living out our faith on an everyday basis. Peter is very, very focused on these topics. And so you're going to think, you know, this sounds repetitious. It seems like we've covered this before, but it's the nature of Peter and his letter. Now, last week, if you were here, we talked at length about some uncomfortable and difficult topics, namely authority and submission. But not only that, we talked about authority and submission as they relate to the government and as they relate to servants and masters. And some of you have some very strong opinions about this I found in my email box on Monday morning. But you see, Peter was addressing some very particular cultural context and some cultural baggage that the people were facing in the first century. And he's pointing them to this new reality that also applies to us today. First, that God is our authority and every other authority gets their authority from him. But not only that, all of us are called to submit to our ultimate authority, who is 
God. But the amazing thing about our God as he relates to us through the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, is that God himself models submission within the Trinity, a perfect submission. So again, he is our ultimate authority. He puts every other authority into place. We are called to submit to his authority, just like he models for us. Now, if you read ahead or if you are at 1 Peter chapter 3 in your Bible, you might notice there are seven more verses that talk about submission. But this time in the context of marriage. All right? Not controversial at all. Now, when we're trying to cover a book of the Bible, even one as seemingly short as 1 Peter, and we're trying to do this in eight weeks, it means we can't do a deep dive into every single verse, unfortunately. So what I want to do is to sum up these first seven verses in one statement and then invite you to some future opportunities to go deeper. So I understand these verses have caused a lot of controversy. They've sometimes been used in less than ideal ways. They've even justified mistreatment within certain relationships. But the most helpful thing I've ever heard about the topic of marriage and submission is this. Marriage should be a submission competition. Marriage should be a submission competition. Now, if it's a competition, that means both people participate fully, right? It's not the job of just one spouse or the other. But if both spouses every day are competing to outsubmit each other, well, that's going to be an amazing relationship. You know, perhaps this would be a little nugget that you could take and start to implement in your marriage, your relationship today. And I think you would see amazing fruit. But I also want to invite you back for two opportunities to dig deeper into how to have a healthy and happy marriage. The first is we're hosting a marriage workshop here at the Golden Valley campus on Saturday, April 13th from 8.30 to 12.30 p.m. Now, it's the same workshop or the people um, hosting the workshop that we brought in last spring. And my wife, Lexi, and I attended, and let me say, it was well worth the time and the investment. We got a ton out of it. It was just a wonderful, wonderful morning digging into our marriage together. So I would encourage you, invite you to come and to check this out on Saturday, April 13th. You can register on our website. The other thing is, Easter is right around the corner, and we like to do a marriage and relationship sermon series beginning the week after Easter. It's something that you can invite your friends back to. It's something I think many of us are looking for. And so just keep it on your radar. The week after Easter, starting in April, we are going to do a sermon series on marriage and relationships. So the theme for the sermon series that we are in, we're right in the middle of, is called Living Hope. And 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, is kind of a thesis statement that Peter gives us. It's something that we should keep at the forefront of our minds really every day. He says, in his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope 
through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. Now the key word there, living hope. This isn't an abstract idea. It's not just a philosophical theory. This is a living hope that actually can make a difference in every single part of our lives. Whether we're going through the good times or the bad times. You know, it's, it's equally applicable whether we're in a time that feels comfortable or when we're facing difficult hardships or even when suffering. But today, Peter is going to show us how we ourselves can display our living hope. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And how we can display our living hope in our relationships and even in how we handle the storms of life. So again, if you turned to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to pick it up in verse 8. So this is what Peter says. Finally, and some of you are you know, breathing a sigh of relief. It sounds like we're ending, right? Well, let me just tell you, this is like when I say finally, like 15 minutes into a sermon, and then people say later, why did you go another 20 minutes after you said finally? Well, you just kind of get a, a second wind as a, a preacher, all right? So Peter is getting his second wind. We're only halfway. So finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. So again, remember, Peter is writing into a context where they're facing great suffering and persecution, right? For their faith, they're being persecuted and even killed and tortured because of their commitment to following Jesus. Now, here today, in 2024, in the United States of America, America, we are not facing the same suffering and persecution that they were for our faith. But I think the scripture also makes it clear that suffering is really a very broad category of experiences. That no matter what our context, no matter what period of time we're living in, we still struggle and we fight against so much more than flesh and blood. Remember, Paul tells us that we face opposition from the spiritual forces of evil and darkness in the heavenly realms. And that means the enemy wants to trip us up. The enemy doesn't want us to follow Jesus or to grow in our relationship with Jesus. The enemy doesn't want us to be a witness to others or to be an example of living hope. 
The enemy doesn't want us to live out our faith, whether it's in our families, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our schools. Now, Romans chapter 8 tells us that all of creation experiences the consequences and the brokenness of sin. That means we can, we can see the effects in creation through natural disasters and tragedies. But then on a personal level, we can see it through sickness and suffering and death. But also we might face tension and friction and even pushback because of our faith. You know, maybe you've been excluded. Maybe you've been made fun of. Maybe you've been judged by others because of your decision to follow Jesus on an everyday basis. So the reality is we will all face suffering and hardship in a whole wide variety of ways in this broken world. And it's into that type of reality, into that brutal reality that Peter wants us to prepare for the best. Yeah, you heard that right. He wants us to actually prepare for the best. Now, if you're at all like me, I'm way better at preparing for the worst. Like, I want to take care of every contingency. I try to have a plan B and a plan C. And yet, Peter, even as he faces this difficult season of life, tons of tragedy, tons of suffering, Peter continues to face that opposition with optimism and with positivity And so he gives us three situations where we can display our hope, where we can display the living hope that we have in Jesus so that we can experience the best blessings even in the worst of times. Now, a major focus that we've already seen in Peter's letter is a focus on our response our response to the world, our response to other people, our response to our struggles. Now, Peter keeps hammering away that this is because our response impacts our witness. You see, people are watching. They're watching carefully to see how we choose to act, how we choose to speak, how we choose to move forward even in those hard times of life. They want to see if our faith that we claim to have actually matters. Now, the thing is, when we face conflict and friction and tension and opposition, it's so, so easy for us to let go of our values and our convictions Right? We know this to be true. It's so easy to return fire with fire or to take the bait and to lapse in to the behavior that's just normalized around us. Now, here's the irony, church. Christians are meant to be distinctive. We're meant to actually stand out from the rest of the world. It's why Peter again and again calls us exiles or foreigners on earth. But you know, when we're criticized or when we're mocked for our faith, often our temptation is to criticize and to mock the other person back. And you know, when we do that, we're no longer distinctive. It means we're just like everyone else. 
And it allows the people around us to conclude, see, those Christians aren't what they claim to be. And it's another victory for the hostile and skeptical world. So Peter is telling you and me this morning that we need new habits and we need need new practices so we don't fall into that trap again and again. So I think the first thing that Peter is going to tell us to do, he's going to remind us we can display our living hope in our relationships with other believers. We can display our living hope with our brothers and sisters in Christ. And you might say, that sounds super basic. And it is, right? But we're not great at it, if we're honest. Verse 8 says we should begin with our love for God's people, our brothers and sisters in Christ. So again, he says, finally, and what that actually means in the Greek is to sum it all up. All right, this is to kind of sum everything up. To do so is to love others well. All right, the thing about love is we're told throughout Scripture that to fulfill or to sum up the law means to love others well. And it's the same thing for our relationships, right? If we want to sum our relationships up, if we want to fulfill what our relationships are supposed to be about, it means we need to love others well. Now, Peter himself had firsthand experience with how difficult this can be. Remember, he was the fiery guy that made a lot of mistakes. He put his foot in his mouth all the time, and he had to experience Jesus's loving grace again and again. Jesus had to be so patient with him, which would be so comforting to us. And so this applies to every Christian in every part of life. Peter goes on to tell us very specifically what this looks like. The first thing, he says, you should be of one mind. Right? This kind of love looks like unity. Unity, not uniformity. Right? This is a cooperation. It's a respect even amidst diversity. The members of the body of Christ should work together in unity, even despite our differences. Now, we might approach certain issues in different ways. We might not agree on every approach, but we can still be united in Christ. In the past couple of decades, maybe you've noticed politics have become an incredibly divisive source of disunity in the church. And I've preached on this before, I've taught on this before, but I think biblically, it's pretty clear that we should have more in common with people who share our faith and not our politics than we have in common with those who share our politics and not our faith. We should have more in common with those who share a faith in Christ than any other thing. That is where our unity lies. Again, we might approach different issues and different topics and ways forward in much different ways, but we can still be united in Christ. Now, Jesus modeled this with his disciples. We don't have time to go deep into this again, but Jesus basically called people on all parts of the political spectrum to come and follow him and to work together in 
unity. And so we can do the same. Now, the next thing is this looks like sympathy. He says sympathize with each other. This is a compassion that we should have towards each other. We can't get hard-hearted We can't become indifferent. We can't be uncaring within the body of Christ. We are brothers and sisters, and it means that we need to share our joys and our sorrows together. Now, this love also looks like being tender-hearted, tender-hearted towards each other. Now, in the Roman Empire, this was not a desirable quality at all. But Christians changed the narrative because they acted with tender hearts towards outcasts, towards people who were thrown away by people who were considered outsiders. You see, Christians had a desire and the willingness to take care of the sick and the disabled and the discarded. It was perfectly all right to discard your children out on the street if you didn't want them anymore. If you had a disabled family member or an ill family member, oftentimes you would just leave them to die. But Christians would go around and they would adopt these unwanted children. They would go and take care of the sick and develop the very first hospitals. And it was such a countercultural thing. It was noticed by everyone. It's included in all kinds of historical documents. Who are these crazy Christians that have a tender heart towards people? Well, finally, our love also needs to be humble. Peter says we should have a humble attitude. A humble person puts the needs of others ahead of themselves. A humble person puts others ahead of their own agenda. Now, why exactly is Peter telling his readers and us this? Why does Peter tell us to have these qualities in our relationships with fellow Christians? Well, remember, his first century audience is suffering profoundly. And I think we all know hardships and difficulties can put incredible pressure on our relationships. And when we're under stress, well, we're more likely to lash out at others, to get angry with each other, to be unloving towards each other. So what's Peter's answer to this problem? His answer is to say, remember you are a family. Remember, you are in Christ, which means you are brothers and sisters in Christ, members of each other. And when one suffers, we all suffer. And when one rejoices, we all rejoice. Now, this kind of compassion and mercy that we should have towards others Well, the source is God himself, his compassion and mercy for us, right? When we truly understand, when we come to terms with the compassion and mercy that he has given us, well, then we can extend it to others. But when we don't process, when we don't receive, when we don't understand what God has done for us, well, then we have a really hard time showing that same kind of compassion and mercy to others, And so never forget what God has done for you in Jesus. You see, this response becomes a key calling of every follower of Jesus to love one another, to bear each other's burdens. It should be a core focus of when we get together for worship or small groups or any other programming 
to be thinking, God, how can I help my brothers and sisters today? God, how can I help bear their burdens? Asking each other, how can I be praying for you? What are you struggling with? How is your relationship with Christ going? And then actually taking the time to encourage and to pray and to build each other up and point each other to the power of the gospel. You see, we have to remember, Calvary, we are a family. And when we fight with each other, we're fighting the wrong enemy. And so let's love one another like Peter challenges us. And to do it with unity and sympathy and tenderheartedness and humility. All right, that all sounds challenging enough, right? But it gets even more difficult. Because the second thing that Peter tells us to do is that we can display our living hope in our relationships with unbelievers. Now, not even just like a neutral unbeliever, he's talking about people who are actively working against the faith. Remember, these people that are receiving the letter firsthand are experiencing unbelievable persecution for their faith. And Peter is trying to tell them it's going to get worse before it ever gets better. And so as Christians, we have to consider how we respond to evil. Now at a human level, this is easy, right? You respond with good to good and evil to evil, right? That's just fair. It's just just. But at a divine, godly level, we're challenged to respond with good, even to evil. Instead of focusing on justice and vengeance, Jesus shows us that we should value and we should model mercy even more. Now think about how much this teaching that Jesus himself gave meant to Peter. Remember, Peter had one of his hard moments when Jesus is about to be arrested in the garden and he cut some guy's ear off, right? Peter didn't understand the value of how to treat unbelievers and even those persecuting But then a little bit later, in the book of Acts, the history of the early church, Peter and Paul are traveling all over the world sharing the gospel. And what we see is they never stoop to violence. They never try to get even. Instead, they rely on God's wisdom and God's power every single day. And so remember, we're called as followers of Jesus to love our enemies, to treat them well, even when they treat us poorly. Don't settle the score. Don't try to get revenge. Don't try to get even. But look at it. It actually says pay them back with a blessing. Right? It's not just ignore them or just let it go by. It's actually one step further. We're supposed to pay them back with a blessing. Now, I think Peter is thinking about what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. He said, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. All right, that's hard enough. But then he says, rejoice and be glad. Like talk about cognitive dissonance, right? How can you be glad and how can you rejoice when you're being persecuted? Jesus doesn't say, blessed are you when you retaliate. Blessed are you when you settle the score. Blessed are you when you come up with an elaborate revenge scenario that goes perfectly No, instead, blessed are you when instead we leave all of that up to God and instead we seek to bless the other person. 
Now, we're only a week away from the Super Bowl, right? And I think most of us who enjoy watching sports are not looking for a 3-0 to game, right? We like lots of offense. We want it to go back and forth, touchdown after touchdown. That's the most exciting thing to watch. Now, while that might be good in sports, it's a really terrible way to live out a relationship, right? But how often do we just try to go back and forth and back and forth in a relationship? We try to get even. We try to be one up on the other person. Here we're reminded that there's something better than getting even. And that thing that's better is to actually bless the other person. So how do we bless others when they hurt us or when they offend us? Well, it starts by praying for them. It starts by seeking to love them and to truly understand them. It starts with releasing our need and our want to get even. You see, those things have the power to break the cycle, to de-escalate the situation. And sometimes it's going to feel impossible. But you know what? It's made possible through Jesus. Remember, Jesus loved us while we were still his enemies. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. But not only that, while Jesus hung on the cross, he actually prayed for his enemies. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Well, then in verses 10 to 12 of 1 Peter 3, he quotes directly from Psalm 34. And he says this. He says, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days. I mean, who here wants to enjoy life and to have happy days? All of us, right? But how do we do that amidst hardship and suffering? Well, he says, search for peace. Pursue peace. Make that a goal in your relationship, in your life. When we pursue peace in our relationships, it definitely makes a difference. You see, when we live like this, when we choose to pursue peace, well, then we receive God's blessing. And you might say, well, what in the world does that mean? What kind of blessing are we talking about here? Well, look at verse 12. It says, the eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. Have you ever seen the show Undercover Boss before? It's whether a CEO or an executive from a company goes undercover to go see their employees in action, to see how the business runs. Like the CEO puts on an elaborate costume and they're down in the mailroom or they're out in the warehouse or they're in the truck and they get to see how their employees are working. Now, the cool thing is usually the employees come through with you know, flying colors and they're super high integrity and doing great, but not always. But think of what a difference it would make to know your boss is sitting there if they didn't have a disguise on. I mean, you'd be on your best behavior, right? Well, church, the reality is God is with us every step of the way. It means God is here now. It means God is in your car. He's at home. He's at work. He's at school. And you might say, well, why is this? What's he looking for? Is he just waiting to punish us, just waiting for us to mess up so he can throw the book at us? No, it's so he can truly see us, so that he can hear our prayers when we struggle and when we're in pain. It's so that we know no suffering is wasted, no pain is ever without purpose, no gracious word or gracious action 
is ever forgotten. See, the blessing we receive is the constant presence and love of our Heavenly Father. What an amazing thing. Well, then third and finally, I promise, it says we can display our living hope in times of hardship and suffering. All right, there's one more place that we can show and display our living hope, but it might be the most difficult place. So Peter sounds with a seemingly ridiculous question. He says, now who will want to harm you if you are eager to do good? And you can imagine this first century audience saying, Peter, have you ever met people before, right? You might say, I mean, have you ever been to my workplace? Have you ever been to my school? Have you ever been in my home before? Because when I follow Jesus, it leads to division and arguments ill will, skepticism. But then Peter says this, but even if you suffer for doing what is right, God will reward you for it. So don't worry or be afraid. Now, as we've been talking about again and again, life is full of suffering, right? It just is. We know that to be true. And sometimes if we're honest, the source of our suffering is ourselves, our bad choices, the decisions we make, the things we embrace that we shouldn't. And that kind of makes sense. But then there are those times that we suffer when we seemingly do everything right. What's up with that? You know, sometimes we do suffer because we do the right thing. And instead of jumping to the conclusion, well, God must be mad at me or God must be on vacation for a week or he must be indifferent, we need to be reminded that God is still here. He holds the whole world in his hands. Jesus came to suffer and die and to rise again to strengthen us so that we can endure, so that we can live in light of a future promise, the promise that we will experience a time when there is no longer suffering or death or evil or sin. You see, when we face hardship and pain, our confidence and our hope comes through Jesus. Now, the thing about this is when we can demonstrate this living hope in our lives during these hard times, others take notice, right? Others see this and they say, how in the world are you able to live in this way? And Peter tells us in verse 15, if someone asks about your hope as a believer, always be ready to explain it. God can use a painful season in our life to give us a unique platform so we can share our hope with others. God can take our pain and turn it into a purpose where we're able to share our hope in Jesus. So church, we have these incredible opportunities each and every day to display our living hope that we have in Jesus. We can do it in our relationships with each other, our relationships with unbelievers and the hostile world, and in those seasons of hardship and suffering. Now imagine what a difference we could make if we would leave this place today and if every one of us would go and display our living hope in every relationship, in every interaction, in every circumstance. 
Imagine what a difference it would make if our living hope was on display. Will you pray with me? Gracious God, we give you thanks for your grace, for your power, for your mercy, for your compassion. God, we thank you for caring about every detail of our life, every moment of the day. And God, we want to live for you each day. God, we want to display our living hope in our relationships, in our circumstances. And so again, remind us of your love, remind us of your mercy, and God, show us how we can live out our faith to make a difference in the lives around us. And so God, we're thankful that you're able to give purpose to our pain, that you're able to give us a platform even in those hard times of life. And so God, we trust all of who we are to your care in Jesus' name. And let's all say together, amen.